Welcome to Frankly Speaking on the TurfNet Radio Network. Here is your host, Dr. Frank Rossi. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, and I'm happy to welcome Mike Hook, our regular correspondent on the Frankly Speaking podcast uh, when it's matters of water and, and the great state of California. Mike is of Irrigation and Turf Services in California, and for those of you regular listeners to Frankly Speaking, you know the kinds of conversations we are in for uh, in this episode. So, Mike, uh, welcome to the program. Uh, Good to have you aboard. And how does it feel to have the drought over in California? Well, it feels pretty good, except that not everybody agrees the drought's over, Frank. That's right. Okay. So that's exactly what we want to explore today. So, you know, I'm looking at some of the data uh for where we were right so in 2015 uh we had uh, 37 inches of uh snowfall in the in the northern sierra nevada mountains uh below the average of about 50 inches uh reservoirs uh dipped to uh 11 million acre about almost 12 million acre feet of water a third less than the average and the groundwater levels are uh, about a third of those and have dropped 10 feet. And something I didn't realize until recently when I've had some students here from California, Mike, that uh, the land sinks when you yes. when you take the groundwater out, which I'm not sure that's a widely known fact that the actual earth can shift between three and eight feet. There's a word oh, God, for it. it. What it's is more that? than that in some areas. What Frank. is that word, Mike? Is it sub? What's Sub- that? Subsidence. Subsidence. Okay, so... Yeah. It was pretty bad, right? And now um, the northern Sierras are up to 76 inches of rain, um, normally where they'd be about 20 to 30 inches of, of rainfall and snowfall. So the it looks by some measure, as I've learned about drought, that the meteorological drought or the sort of amount of water that's needed to supply it has fallen to alleviate the meteorological drought. But as you just said, there's other parts of water shortages that are persisting. So let's go through that. What are they? Well, it's groundwater primarily, Frank, and uh, our reservoirs, our surface water reservoirs are full for the most part. There may be one or two that are lagging a little, you know, just a percent or two, a few percent underneath where they normally are this time of year. Uh, If you look at the statewide area, there were two counties in particular in Southern California, Santa Barbara and Ventura, that were lagging behind as far as the drought monitor taking them out of complete drought. They were by far better off than they were a year ago, but they weren't quite out of it. And that's, in my opinion, that's primarily because Santa Barbara is last in line just about for any state water project water because they were last to join the party, so to speak. They wanted to control growth back, I think it was back in the 70s, and then realized that they really couldn't do that. And and, But now that's come to harm them because they're last, first in time, first in right type thing. They're last in time, last in right to get water off that system. So their main reservoirs are behind schedule as far as filling a little bit. They didn't get quite as much rain as some of the other areas did uh, throughout the state. And then the other county is Ventura County, which I would say probably relies more on groundwater than a lot of other areas and has a lot of agriculture left in it yet. 
So there's been a lot of uh, groundwater pumping in that area, and there's a lot of golf courses that rely on groundwater yet in that area, and they don't have alternative sources, be it city, municipal, potable water, or recycled water. So, so there's some, so there's some areas, so there's some areas, and this is where it gets very interesting, right? Because there's some areas, as I hear you say, are extremely dependent on their groundwater, and other areas are extremely dependent on their reservoirs. And some of that is just distribution of rights and the way the water system was set up. Exactly. But, but, but the further thing that complicates this appears to be that, you know, agriculture as a whole takes almost 40% of the water out of the ground, right? Doesn't almost 40% of their water come from groundwater? No, I, well, that I'm not sure the exact number on that because they do use a lot of uh, surface water. And they actually have replenishment basins for their groundwater and things like that. Again, that depends on location. If they're in the area, one of the canal systems that they can access surface water or not. And and a lot of or a lot of agriculture, because of the drought and because of the lack of allocations of surface water the past few years to protect the Delta smelt up in the Sacramento Bay Delta area they've relied more on pumping groundwater. So their groundwater use is actually accelerated because of that. They did some interesting things this winter, though. Uh, the University of California, Davis, was working with some almond growers in, in parts of uh, the Central Valley uh, where they had the proper soil types, sandier soils, where they could flood almond uh, orchards and try and do recharge. And they're trying to do it during the dormant period. And then they're going to monitor the trees real closely, make sure they don't get any kind of root diseases and don't lo- have a loss of production or anything like that that would harm the farmers in the long term. But they're, they're looking for solutions to try and get some of that groundwater replenished that otherwise we may have to wait decades and decades for it to naturally replenish. Okay, so there you go. So, so therein lies the neck. That, that's, that's the perfect transition, Mike. So if, in fact, groundwater is going to take much longer uh, to replenish these kinds of ideas like this almond approach. And I guess if I was crazy and thought about how golf courses could be places where infiltration to groundwater could occur, right? I mean, these could be places where if, if in fact what you need is slow infiltration of this rainfall uh, to replenish the groundwater, I mean, obviously, that's a, you know, sort of a unique thing with the almond growers. But the last time we talked, Mike, are they now making bigger plans to deal with this issue that, you know, you're just one year away from being where you were a year ago? Um, What are you hearing about the kinds of plans? Like when we talked uh, last time, one of the things that was under discussion was the need to increase our storage capacity. Right. Are places uh, actively doing? Because I, as I look at the map as we're talking here, you are right. Sacramento has a and 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 that basin to the north of it yes. has an enormous amount of groundwater wells. Yeah. I mean, if if they're going to take a long time to replenish, those people got to think about something else. What kinds of uh, things are is the state of California thinking with regard to collection and storage? Well. There's lots of talk about trying to capture more stormwater runoff and, and partially due to, you know, the, the concerns of climate change that we won't get as much, uh, to put it in turf terms, slow release water known as snow 
up in the higher elevations and that our reservoirs, you know, we kind of rely on a certain amount of rainfall filling them initially, snow above that, that slowly feeds down in as we draw water off of the reservoirs, it's slowly being replenished somewhat. So there's, in Southern California, there's lots of talk about trying to capture stormwater and, and retain it into the the original rivers and channels, but you know most of those rivers and channels were concreted in to facilitate faster drainage and reduce flooding. And now we're kind of rethinking that and they're looking at different basins in the LA area where they can put porous pavement, uh, ah. put um, uh, gutters and, and uh, uh, median strips that will capture water as opposed to, you know, just irrigate some turf or plants that were in it, they actually belly them out so that they'll capture some water and infiltrate more. Um, there's a, a whole section up in the, I want to say the San Fernando Valley. It's a very sandy soil alluvial basin off the mountains that they'd like to be able to, to dam up portions of that, that they used to just, you know, want to get the water out of there. And now they're looking at, well, how can we capture some more of that? and get it down into the groundwater because there are a lot of groundwater basins in LA and northern part of Orange County. Uh, there's parts of San Diego County and southern Orange County too, but not so much well, higher quality water. But in those areas where we do have high quality groundwater, there is thinking going that way about how do we replenish, how do we recharge. And like I said, when you get farther north up in the Central Valley, Sacramento uh, Valley area, You've got uh, this idea of how do we use agricultural lands during the rainy season to maximize replenishment of groundwater. Huh. So what about the other way? What about, obviously, if they want to catch and collect more, um, the other thing is to recycle the water that's in the system. Has the drought forced um, any more discussion or construction <laughs> of recycling plants that might lead to what I hear you smirking. I actually I hope <laughs> this is a good question. Well, I don't know what, so, so what I, what I do want to know is has this led to uh, greater use or, or, or investments in recycled water? Yes, but not for irrigation, not so much for irrigation. Uh, it's going to go into drinking water system. There's a, uh, there was a pilot project started several years ago down in San Diego County, uh, or they call it Reservoir Augmentation or Indirect Potable Reuse, IPR. Uh, and the guidelines written for the uh, health department and the State Water Resources Control Board were uh, approved for that purpose, I wanna say a year ago or something like that, or just maybe it was just last June or July, they, by the end of this year, I think it was the end of January, they were supposed to have at least a draft for DPR, direct portable reuse or toilet to tap, as they, uh, as the naysayers like to call it. And I, I, I'm not real comfortable with toilet to tap myself. Um, uh, I'm more comfortable with the IPR because at least you're percolating it back into groundwater or you're blending it with some of the other water and then it gets filtered again at the final treatment facility before it goes into the drinking water lines. But this isn't really anything new. They've been doing it in the Middle East. They've been doing it in, uh, I think it's Taiwan, perhaps. Uh, one, of the, one of the Asian companies does it. And in fact, uh, I've got a picture in one of my presentations. In fact, probably the presentation I gave out there 
by you at uh, Rochester in November of a bottled water called New Water. It's spelled N-U Water. And it's uh, um, Singapore. It's from Singapore, not Taiwan, um, where they actually sell bottled water that's recycled sewage water, basically. It's gone through all the treatment that we do for irrigation that goes beyond that into reverse osmosis, charcoal filtration, and uh, uh, UV light and things like that. And, and then uh, they bottle it and sell it. Okay, so, so I, I can only imagine, before we go to uh, our first message, we're already flying through this, Mike, but I can only imagine um, that part of the motivation to do this uh, indirect potable reuse or, or groundwater recharge using recycled water um, is, is to lessen the, the population demand on it, right? And I'm, I'm good with that, right? I mean, I think you have said to us in the past that, that, that the conservation measures we've made among a population uh, is, is leading to less pressure uh, on those sources. However, however, uh, ag and food production, you know, while we back here in New York State were hoping maybe we'd catch a break, we could plant another quarter million acres because you guys were going to plant less because <laughs> you'd have less water. So we're thinking maybe we can get you know, some broccoli to grow up here and some other things. And we're investing in research for more food security up here in the Northeast. And it doesn't appear that what looks like an insatiable demand for water from your agricultural industries is showing any signs of waning. So that's why I think they got to be doing this with the population. Is, is that a fair assessment? That's a fair assessment. The other part of it, Frank, is uh, energy cost. And greenhouse gas emissions, California, everything you do on a project like this now, you have to calculate your your greenhouse gas emissions as part of that thing. And if you use more electricity, you emit more, you know, greenhouse gases because we don't have a, a complete supply of, uh, you know, like hydropower or something mm-hmm. like that necessarily. Yep, yep, yep. And to get the water, say, into Southern California, I heard this quote one time uh, from a fellow that worked for both the uh, – the power company and the, the water purveyors and the uh, gas company. He was had a joint thing because they're all connected. He said that if you run the run this uh, faucet while you're brushing your teeth in San Diego for five minutes, that's enough energy to run a compact fluorescent light bulb for like 18 years or some crazy thing like that. <laughs> and it's because we have to lift that water you know, we have to bring it from the northern Sierras, the north end of the state, which is a 10 to 12 hour drive away. We have to lift it something like 5,000 or 7,000 feet elevation to get it up and over the Tehachapi Range. And then we've got to, you know, maneuver it from where it falls down into LA all the way down to San Diego. And that all adds up. So, in essence, it's cheaper to do all the treatment and less energy intensive to do all the treatment sometimes than it is to bring another drop of water over the mountain. Isn't that interesting? We are with Mike Cuck here on Frankly Speaking, and we're going to continue this conversation after a message from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time. 
leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi at Cornell University. This is TurfNet.com, and I'm with my pal Mike Huck of Irrigation and Turf Surfaces in, Calif- of, in California. And Mike and I go a long way back to our days in the Badger State when, when uh, he was being trained there, and I was meeting his cousin there, and then we were bumping into each other at research meetings. So we go back a long way, Mike. And so one of the things that you know I've learned from being near you is that I, if I ask you a pretty good question about, you know, what have we learned, uh, whether it was in the things I know you learned from the USGA when we used to have conversations about the various nozzles that you were working on uh, when you first started irrigation and turf services, you've always sort of been out a little bit ahead of where I think other people are. And of course, that's a big deal with this water thing. Before we came back uh, from the message uh, in between off air, I was telling you we're going to shift to what did we learn? And one of the first things we talked about was, you know, I wasn't too much in love with hearing that there's a toilet to tap initiative going on in, in California. And I'm not sure I want to ever hear that happen in New Jersey or some other sort of place. But, but um, when I mentioned that, you said that there, one of the changes that may be happening is this whole way that landscapes and households handle gray water yes take a minute and tell us i'm assuming this has been as a direct result of the most recent drought well yes uh it was something that uh, a lot of people that were you know really into the green movement and everything had started pushing well probably a decade or more ago it's called gray water and people think gray water and recycled water are the same thing they're not recycled water is highly treated water that's gone down the sewage it's the sediments have been uh, settled out, filtered, disinfected. Gray water is when they build new homes now in a lot of areas here in Southern California, at least, and probably in Northern Cal too. I'm just not familiar enough uh, with what they're doing up there all the time. But it, uh, gray water is taking your sinks, your dishwasher, and your clothes washing machine, and you you drain that water into a holding tank, and then your toilet flushes go straight into the sewer. The water in the holding tank can be used for subsurface drip irrigation. You can't use it for sprinkler spray irrigation because it hasn't been disinfected like recycled water, where you can use recycled water for spray irrigation. But it's it's your own on-site residential irrigation recycling system. And Boy, it just it almost sounds too good to be true, Mike. Tell me that for some reason it's a great idea, but it doesn't function. Does this do these systems function regularly? in landscapes in California, and if they did and do, were these people spared from some of the issues that the rest of the state faced? Absolutely. They didn't have to shut off their outdoor landscape irrigation because they weren't using potable water. And and to my knowledge, they work and work pretty well, Frank. Uh, you know, the, the challenges with drip irrigation, there's challenges there for the average person to work with and even professionals to work with. Drip irrigation with recycled water is a challenge, say on a golf course, if you're going to drip trees or flower beds up the clubhouse or around the restroom out on the 13th hole. 
Well, I mean, well, Mike, Bert Leinauer is leading us for many years now in New Mexico. He's been on to the, he's trying to put saline water, uh, you know, really poor quality water through those things. And him and Mateo, I think, are starting to have some success down there. Oh, absolutely. I've always thought that was a really good idea. And I'm trying to figure out why it hasn't caught on more. Are you telling me I'd see regular lawns in Southern California that are being drip irrigated by their uh, gray water system? Not lawns so much. Not lawns so much as drought tolerant materials. Um, you know, you, you use an average of uh, indoor usage per person for capita. Oh, I think it was 70 gallons. It was over 100 gallons before the drought. It got down to like 69 or 68 gallons per day per person on average uh, during the drought. So you take a family of four, that's, you know, 250 gallons a day. You aren't going to irrigate turf with 250 gallons on the average lawn out here with an ET of, you know, 0.2 to 0.3, depending on your location. So, you know, it's more of the tune of you're going to have a garden area, maybe a small turf in the backyard. You're not going to have wall-to-wall turf like we had once had in Southern California. Right. Okay. So So that's another perfect segue, Mike. To the next part of the conversation. So what did we learn? What are you seeing resonating, particularly in the golf business? So please tell me something's changed, right? I mean, I'm, I'm actually asking you this cold, so I'm just assuming things have changed dramatically. So how would you characterize the change? Is it change in regulatory stuff? Is it change in guys are doing new systems? Is it change in they're irrigating less turf? Is it change in the way they're deciding to irrigate and letting it go browner? Where are the changes? I think there's all the above, Frank. And we've seen, uh, as opposed to overseeding in the coastal areas, which was never a good idea anyways, because the ryegrass outcompeted with the the Kikuya and the Bermuda grass. Uh, When the transition's never very strong here. And in fact, it's really not that great out in the desert either, but they just don't have anybody out there in July to see it. Uh, but we're using more paints and dyes in the coastal areas. And, and for our shorter dormancy period here in the coastal areas, it, wow, that was the perfect political cover to say we're not going to overseed and I'm going to paint. And everybody's going, wow, the fairways are so much better in spring and you know, midsummer now. Uh, so that was one big change. So painting replaced overseeding in many of the coastal areas. Yes. So apparently overseeding hung on longer in Southern California than it did in the Southeast because overseeding is almost completely gone by the wayside in the Southeast. Well, the, yeah, but the Southeast doesn't have Palm Springs two hours drive from them, doesn't have Phoenix four hour drive from them or Vegas four hour drive from them where they, the, the climate is hot and miserable enough that the overseeding doesn't survive very well so they can transition so that and, and even though it's not a perfect transition those areas like i say when it's 120 in the middle of july there aren't that many players out there or, or as dave kopeck would say down at the university of arizona it's a 90 degree rule after it's 90 degrees no way plays um but <laughs> uncle dave yeah uncle dave funny uncle dave but so so what so so big changes so they're painting instead of overseeding yeah. what else uh Turf reduction is continuing. When people are doing redesign and remodeling, uh, I think it's almost like a civic duty. Uh, People now see it as we don't need 110 acres of wall-to-wall grass. 
It doesn't have to be a green park everywhere. In fact, it may even be more attractive and uh, focus your game a little better by taking out some turf and putting in some drought tolerant materials, some desert, you know, native materials. Uh, so there appears to be at least a, a broader acceptance now of, of alternative plant materials and maybe uh, a little bit less manicured look around the edges. Yeah. Well, I'd say that yeah, that's a, a maybe and a maybe not. The, the edges, you know, they want a clean, defined turf line. It's not like you can do out in the east where you have your kind of taller grass that just kind of gets wispy and, and tall in that. We've got a complete distinct change from turf to broadleaf. Yeah, broadleaf and, you know, maybe mulch and cactus and, and not necessarily cactus, but, you know, native uh, coastal sage environment type plant material. But a lot of bare ground, right? I mean, you're not, you're just, you're not maintaining as much vegetation right. on the surface. Right, you're keeping some open space in there because if, you know, if you get those areas too dense, it, it slows down play quite All right, so, so, so now, so we've covered overseeding and painting, and we've covered turf reduction, which you say now they're doing as civic duty, which before they were doing for the, for the cash. Well, it wasn't just the cash before, and it's civic duty, and it is to reduce budgets our water bills are not going to go down again. And when you've got golf courses that are paying 300 to 500 grand a year for water and you haven't even started the greens mowers in the morning, you know, I, you, you got to start thinking about this when it, when 25 to 40% of your budget is water. So, and so I'm going to, we're going to save this for the last segment, but I'm assuming that there's some indication of, What's going to happen to those water bills? How are they going to increase it? Is it going to be a, is that going to be a, a, a long-term impact, Mike, that there's just going to be this, you know, three to 4% a year? Or do you imagine they're going to keep it steady? And then when they think they're going to do a project, boom, it's going to go up 20%. No, I, I for the most part, it appears it's going to be a three to 5%, you know, continual increase that that's appears the way what it's been over the past 10, 15 years. Uh, but, you know, that that just, it, it just gets almost ominous in a sense when you start looking at what it's costing the bottom line because even in years where other things slow down, water continues along that that trend. And, and it goes back to what we talked about in one of the first segments, not this one, but I mean, one of the previous engagements where we spoke where the city of Los Angeles is so proud of growing their population by two times on the same amount of water through conservation. Well, that water is becoming more and more valuable as we go. And, and bringing in that next drop of water becomes more and more expensive due to energy rising, cost rising, uh, due to toilet to tap, the treatment cost is higher than, you know, conventional filtration of a, of a, uh, of a raw water source. It's not potable yet. It's raw water when it comes from the mountains, melts off and we pump it over the mountains and down here, then we gotta, we fil sand filter it and you know disinfect it. Uh, but when we're gonna go and go the toilet to tap route and start using the recycled water, we'd have to take it to another level. We do RO to take the nutrients out and then we do disinfection at two different levels or three different levels and we do charcoal. Right, but, 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 by your, but by your comment earlier, that's still cheaper than hauling oh, yeah. it over the mountain. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay. All right. So listen, I don't want to lose that train of thought that we were talking about. We still got a little bit of time in this segment before we go to break. I want to talk about other changes, and I'm particularly interested in just, you know, you said, again, painting and overseeding, uh, turf reduction, um, uh, um, uh, and, and, and I guess I'm wondering about are they are systems being upgraded are superintendents you know sort of paying using soil sensors are they being better about the water stuff has that really ramped up everybody's game obviously they're driven economic I, I don't know That's, I think the that, economics has driven that before the drought even arrived Frank the everywhere I go I can't remember a place I've gone to where they haven't had a TDR meter or six of them you know we we run our golf courses typically out here in what's called sections and you might have a guy that's responsible for four to three to three to five or three to six holes depending on how big the crew is and things like that and they're they're responsible for hand watering greens and doing weed whipping around trees and you know kind of a little detail work and then you've got guys that are mower operators that do the major mowing but I've walked into shops uh, where the superintendent's got one of those TDR meters for each one of his section men. He have, he'll have uh, four to six of them there, and then you know his assistants might even have one each. And and so. So what about what about in the ground sensors? I'm sure we talked about this yeah. last time. Is there any more of those? I I think those are growing, um, but the the practicality of those and where you place them. Until the price comes down to where you can have more of those, I think that... Uh, yeah. So you need a lot of them. Yeah, right? We'll agree are, about that. You need a lot of them. But I think we're starting to see pretty clearly. There's a couple of us fussing around with this, Mike, where if you if, if you can find a way to calibrate them to your soils and, and to the way you want your turf to look, you can turn the keys over of the large, expansive areas like your fairways, the big applications of water you got to make. I'd much rather turn that off to to the well, sensors. For, if you, get well, you guys where it rains, I agree. But out here, see, we've got the problem with mechanical water application in distribution uniformity. And unless you have a really excellent system that's putting out, you know, the newer systems now, believe it or not, are putting out 85 to 88%, almost 90%. I've measured 90% a couple times on a, a few uh, newer systems. That's incredible. But if you've got an older system that may be down in the 70s and just pushing 80, positioning of those sensors to allow them to completely take over, I think, is still a stretch. It, it, you might be able to get it to that place where you can find the happy medium and make it work, but it, it's going to take a whole lot, a lot of effort. Whereas where you're getting rained on and this thing can just take over and say, hey, we got plenty of moisture here. We don't need to water for a while. And shut down. I think that's a a real viable application. And so you're saying before the drought came along, the economic pressure that these guys were under, particularly out in your neck of the woods, was already driving them. Because I'm wondering, you know, it's not uncommon for me to find a system that's 60 to 65 percent uniform, Mike. I mean, I I could just I could hit a I could hit a golf club to 10 golf courses around here and and find them that way. Um, Please tell me you don't have a lot of those, and maybe the drought uh, would have sent some of those. Did the drought send some of these courses out of business? Um, yeah, there were a few, but I think that they were already economically struggling, and this was just the final nail in the coffin. Okay. And and the so ones no that have sent out of business failure. weren't no necessarily. No widespread failure. 
weren't necessarily the ones that just had an old irrigation system and inefficient. They were sometimes they were newer courses that were built during the ramp up, you know, the big boom, and they were kind of remote and just never never got all the homes sold around them or whatever happened before the real estate crash. And, you know, it, it could have been a multitude of factors. But but none that you'd say really, um, you know, which I got to tell you, Mike, it seems bizarre to me that more places didn't go out of business. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? It should cost so much for the water, right? It, 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 and, and if you're not running a decent business, you know, you probably should get out of that business. So I'm really surprised you can't sort of, I mean, I, and I believe you. It's not that I'm sort of challenging you, but to me it seems so bizarre that with those expenses, listen, Mike, 300 grand is more than the whole budget of a bunch of golf courses within 50 oh, miles. I, I of know, me. Frank, but you got to remember <laughs> not everybody's paying 300 grand. Some guys have got groundwater, may not be the best quality, but that's only costing them maybe 75 grand a pump or 100 grand. So th- there is a wide variance. Here, let me give you an example. Um, down the Palm Springs area, where they need somewhere between 56 and 96 inches of ET replacement. That's reference ET, not adjusted yet. Okay. Versus over here on the coast where we're 24 to 48 inches, depending on how far inland you are. They pay 150 to $200 an acre foot roughly down there because they pay a replenishment fee and a pumping fee and their energy costs because it's groundwater primarily. Other than there, there are some courses on canal water, which is Colorado River water, and there are courses on recycled water, and, and, and it's more and more every day are converting over so they can preserve the groundwater because groundwater is so high quality. But their, their fees are relatively low because of where they're at, and it doesn't cost a lot of energy to get them the canal water and the recycled water they want them to use anyways. But then you come over here on the coast, and we're paying 1500 to two grand an acre foot. You go up to the wow. Bay Area, and they're paying, they're paying 3500 on up an acre foot. Uh, you know, 2,500, 3,500, and maybe even a little bit higher in some areas. So it, it, it just depends where you're at. And, you know, we've got four, over 400 individual water districts in the state of California. Yeah, madness. So listen, we're we got to take another break, Mike. Um, and that, 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 that water district thing was something I wanted to get to in the next section. Uh, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi on TurfNet.com. I'm with Mike Huck of Irrigation and Turf Service in California. We'll be right back after this message. Golf course superintendents, now you can aerate and fill 9 inches to 11 inches deep with minimal surface disruption and cleanup. The Maximus Deep Aeration Instant Fill Service from Dryject injects 1 pound of sand per square foot, 22 tons per acre, and leaves services ready for play again in one hour. Best of all, Maximus by Dryject is only half the cost of alternative deep aeration and fill technologies. Visit MaximusAeration.com to locate your nearest Maximus by Dryject service center. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm here with Mike Huck of Irrigation and Turf Services in California. And we are ending up our conversation here, Mike, trying to talk about what are the long-term uh, impacts of this of this drought, right? We, we agreed at the beginning of our conversation that, that really from a groundwater perspective, uh, we're nowhere near 
uh, sort of solving this problem in, 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 in the sort of value that the groundwater has. We're obviously making some adaptations uh, for recycled water, maybe for improving stormwater catchment. The industry is making some responses. Um, but I want to talk now about what you think are the things that are going to hang on for the long term. And I want to chat with you about that comment you left us with before we went to break. And, and that was those 400 water districts, right? All the various, a whole nother regulatory level that a golf course in California has to deal with that, uh, you know, not a lot of other golf courses have to deal with uh, throughout the United States. So, I paid attention a little bit around the election time, and I saw that a couple of superintendents were, in fact, running for water district boards. Can you give us a, a two-minute thing on the political aspects of what's going to carry on, and do you see the district things becoming more volatile? Um, I, the districts have put up a uh, some pushback to the state. The state wants to leave some of the conservation measures in place. Uh, and the districts pushed back and there's been kind of a, kind of an agreement going on. I, I guess you would say to some extent that everybody's willing to give a little bit up and, uh, but the districts were not making enough money to cover their overhead through the drought where they had to have heavy conservation, you know, where they were cutting back 40% and things like that. And they don't make money if they're not pumping water. Exactly. You know, what other business can you go in on Monday morning and they're going to sit around the board table and say, how can we sell less product this week? <laughs> and that's exactly what the water districts had to do. And so there, it was very contentious, Frank, because uh, a lot of districts started to raise their rates 10, 15, 20 bucks a month per, per residential unit to cover this because their overhead doesn't change. You still have pipes that break, whether you're moving one gallon or a million gallons. You still have, you know, X amount of people that have to send bills out. It just, they're going out with 20 gallons instead of 40 gallons or whatever the numbers might be, you know, 20 units instead of 40 units being built. And so it's really kind of a convoluted business when you think about it, because if you don't have the product to sell, you've still got the same amount of overhead and you have to serve these people. So what the state had done, the state water resources control board is some of the measures that they put in under the emergency mandates when the government governor had his uh, executive orders come out, like uh, no watering of uh, median strips with turf, no planting turf in median strips uh, on highways and things like that and irrigating them. Those things are going to stay in place and they're just common sense for our environment, for our climate out here. Because uh, about as much water ends up going down the gutter when you have little pop-up spray heads oh, along a, a curb. We, we, we were collecting water. My, my brought some students down to Orlando for the golf industry show this year. And, 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 and the sprinkler heads were all on in the landscapes. And, and my guys would stand there and, like, put a coffee cup out and collect water for a few minutes <laughs> and then do the calculations. They were losing enough water in the road to irrigate an entire 18-hole golf course. Oh, absolutely. Right? I mean, so, so that was a good move that you see districts saying, okay, you know, you know, let's give up this stupidness. Um, because yeah, it, and, and this wasn't the districts. This is going into our, our landscape ordinance that's coming down the pike. I mean, we've got one in effect that's never been fully implemented and enforced, and and but I can expect more of that. And I think golf will eventually fall under this and fall under scrutiny, uh, and I think we will start probably acting a little bit more like Las Vegas, Nevada, and uh, Arizona, Phoenix. And what and is that like? Uh, you have a water budget. 
and you get so many acre feet per irrigated acre based on your ET, your, your historical ET. And you will get so many acres worth of water. And it won't be just, you know, whoever can sign the check can get it. After a certain value, then you get penalized monetarily. Like in Vegas, you know, I think they pay about 1700 an acre foot, but they need like, you know, seven or eight feet. Well, if you go over your allocation, then all of a sudden it goes to two or three times that amount. Okay, so it's like in sports, it's the luxury tax. When the Yanks spend too much money on players, all the money they spend above that, they got to pay a big, big tax on. So that's a new deal since the drought and this state versus district thing? No, no, we're, we're pointed that way. Uh, Las Vegas has been in that mode of operation since the early 2000s. Do you like that approach? Uh, has, have you seen that approach work in Vegas or yeah, they just absolutely. keep throwing the well, money at it? Arizona has been on water budget since 1980-ish. They started their Groundwater Management Act back in 1980. I think it went into full effect on golf courses like in 84 or 86. And that was why you started to see target-style golf surface over there. Because the new golf courses were only allocated enough water for about 90 acres. So what's taking California? I mean, listen, we're talking about water budgets up here in the Northeast. What's taking California? What, what has been the sort of resistance to this? People want what they want no matter what if they can pay for it? Well, if you that's part of it. And complexity of this state. If you look at uh, the Cal, California has their weather station system called CIMIS the California Irrigation Management Information System, and they've got several hundred weather stations positioned throughout urban and agricultural areas to help people better irrigate more efficiently. And, and they use it for these little smart irrigation controllers to feed that information to them. Well, if you look at us as a macro environmental thing, we have 18 different major ET zones. And within those, you've got microclimates like you can't believe. Hmm. So, so, so your argument is water budgets aren't easy to do. That's why they don't do them. That's a part of it, I think. Uh, it, it's it's been really hard to get a handle on. The other thing is enforcement is expensive. Wait, Who's going to go wait, out? Wait, and wait, 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 wait! You can't <laughs> stick monitoring things on the edge of these golf courses to see how much water they well, use. That sends off you, an alarm. You can nowadays, but I mean, this started back in nineteen. 19- well, how does Arizona pull it off? I mean, don't they have the same challenges you have? Or are you saying that their climate is, is much more uniform because it's all desert-like? Arizona has what they call active management areas. And I think they have five or six of them, if I remember completely. Uh, Tucson is one, and Phoenix area is another one. And they basically say in, in Phoenix, what it, it works out, they've got a formula for lake area, and you can have maximum amount of surface area of lakes. Then you got a formula for your your overseeded turf, which would be your fairways, tees, and greens. And then you've got a formula for some ancillary turf, like driving range and that, that doesn't get overseeded. You know, so you get different amounts for each one. You add it all up, and it comes out to be like 4.8 acre feet per acre or something like that, or 4.9. You go down to Tucson, they're a little bit milder climate, so they get like 4.6. And... And then you get that for, if you're a, uh, a newly constructed golf course, I think it's like 90 acres, something like that. And if you're an older golf course, then they grandfather you in, you get enough for, uh, I can't remember how many acres exactly, like 35 acres of fairway and rough. You get the full allotment, 
and then the remaining turf, because that's the way you were constructed, you get an allotment that's, uh, say, about 60% of that that other per acre foot, because you're not going to oversee and you're going to allow it to go dormant in the wintertime. They, they give you that much. So, 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 go- so when, you know, I'm listening to you tell me these things, and, and I keep thinking in my mind what, what I learned when I was in Australia uh, this past June. I spent some time with some water guys when I was there. Uh, a student of mine has some family over there that's in the irrigation business, in the flood irrigation business, worked in California for a while, and is now back in Australia. And, and one of the things he talks consistently about, the way you talk about ET and allotments and budgets, I mean, I sort of get that. The way this guy talks about the way water gets allotted is using this concept of maximum allowable deficit, which is almost backing into it, Mike. It's how much water can you live without, right? right. Rather how than how much you water you with? need. Well, and, and that's kind of what was done over in Arizona. Arizona, I think, is the model to follow because they used science to make their determinations. Oh, versus what they use in California. Oh, they're using emotion. Emotion and politics. Yeah, emotion and politics, Frank. But and, and not and not leverage? I mean, does does ag exert a fair amount of political power? Well, uh, ag is not things? included in this in this formula. The model efficient landscape water ordinance or the M Model Water Efficient Landscape Ordinance, pardon me, I got backwards. The M. Wheelow, as it's called in the water industry, uh, only applies to urban. And ag hasn't fallen into it. Now, you go over to Arizona, and even ag is on a water budget. They get so many acre feet per acre, uh, depending on their zone and crop. What's that? Does that affect their, pro- does that affect their productivity of crops yes. in Arizona? Yes. Uh, the fellow that's been doing my renovation at my home is originally from Brawley, and one of his brothers run some land over in Arizona. And he was saying they had to pull some out of production the last couple of years, or one of his cousins in Arizona pulled some land out of production the last few years because of the drought. And they haven't had uh, additional water to do any leaching and manage salinity and things like that. So it, it has affected them uh, in that, in that term. Yeah. So, so, so listen, Mike, we, we are, uh, we've already, you know, whipped through this uh, particular topic and I believe you've gotten me up to speed enough to say there's still a lot more to learn here. I think, um, what I've also heard is, is it might be a good conversation. Uh, we could do a three way with, uh, professor Kopech and uncle Dave, yeah. uh, getting him on the line could be a sideshow in and of itself. What do you think, Mike? <laughs> no doubt about that. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule. Mike Cuck, Irrigation and Turf Services in California. Mike, what a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for joining me. Always fun, Frank. All right, you take care. All right, you I'm too. Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking, smart talk from leading thinkers. You have been listening to Frankly Speaking with host Dr. Frank Rossi on TurfNet Radio Network. Check back for schedules on future programs. Thanks for tuning in.